and welcome to another edition of Resistance TV. Uh, apologies for the delay in starting. We've had one or two technical difficulties, but we're here now. This evening, we're going to be discussing NATO in the modern world and whether Britain should continue to be a member of this military alliance. But it seems criticisms of NATO is no longer allowed in Britain today. I mean, two venues have now cancelled bookings to stage a no to NATO rally in London on the 25th of February. The most recent cancellation was by Conway Hall, which is run by the Ethical Society. I mean, you know, they claim that uh, Conway Hall is a venue where ethics matter. But seemingly, those ethics don't extend to opposing NATO and its proxy war in Ukraine. They say they cancelled the booking because of what they described as an unprecedented onslaught of intimidation. But the question is, who was behind the intimidation? Well, we know that intelligence agency assets like Bellingcat were involved. I mean, even Bellingcat's founder uh, was publicly demanding that permission for the event be rescinded. Anyway, joining me to discuss NATO and the furore generated by the planned note to NATO rally is former British ambassador to Bahrain and Syria, Peter Ford. Peter, Thanks very much indeed for joining us this evening. Look, before we get into your professional experience of NATO's role in the Middle East, I wonder whether you could uh, give us your take on the intimidation that resulted in Conway Hall cancelling the No to NATO rally. Uh, hello, uh, Chris. Good to be uh, with you. Thanks for having me, me on. Um, yes, it's absolutely scandalous. It's uh, outrageous uh, that. They are the other side, the warmongers already control every single newspaper, every single magazine, every single TV channel, and still they want to deny us just the opportunity to meet amongst ourselves. Um, maybe we should take it as a compliment that they're afraid. Well, what is that? They're yeah. afraid for any questioning voices whatsoever to be raised. They they must have a total monopoly on speech. Uh, but this is a sad state of affairs uh, to be happening in, in Britain with our yeah. pretensions about the sacredness of free speech. Well, that, that seems to have been thrown in the, in the dustbin. But is it significant, Peter, that, as I was saying in my introduction, um, intelligence agency assets were involved in the campaign to to close down the the rally i mean i don't know to me it seems that does seem unprecedented i mean when when the iraq war was in the offing you know people were i mean i know they got ignored but people you know protesters opponents of the war were allowed to make their case publicly at rallies but also even on the mainstream media i mean we've been denied access to the mainstream media uh, but to actually stop us even holding a rally and for the intelligence agency assets to be involved, that, that seems to me to be a new low. But I don't know whether you can tell us different, whether it is a new low or whether there's, you know, this sort of thing's happened before. I think it is a, a, a new low. Um, we are in uncharted waters now, I think. Britain is effectively at war. For all intents and purposes, we are at war with Russia. Um, uh, in, 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 in wartime, uh, all bets are, are off. 
that this is the yeah. reality that I think we have to face up to. It's possible, well, it, it, I mean, it's well known that during the Second World War, uh, the government controlled all speech. There was no free speech. And they, mm. they covered up disasters uh, and they, they monopolized public discourse. No dissent was allowed. And, and that is the, the state that we seem to have gotten ourselves into uh, without the people generally being aware that we are in, mm. in a time of, of war and with, that we are sleepwalking into uh, war with, with Russia. But it doesn't surprise me, given experience in recent years post-Iraq, of how uh, intelligence service services have become involved in molding uh, public opinion. Not mm. public opinion in, in other countries. Public opinion in this country is far more important to them. And we saw this uh, during and after the Iraq conflict. We saw it over Afghanistan. Above all, we saw how these information control techniques were honed during the war on Syria, which we effectively... Yes, yeah, so we'll come on to that in, in a moment, I think, uh, Peter, if, if I may. But just in terms of where we are now, though, I mean, obviously, we, neither of us were around during the First World War, but... but just in terms of the kind of public discourse, the abuse that those of us that are calling for peace are being subjected to, it certainly seems to me, from what I've read and dramatic, uh, you know, um, reconstructions of that time in, you know, in dramas and things like that, uh, you know, where conscientious objectors, again, you know, opposed to the First World War, were subject to incredible abuse. And I'll give you an example. I uh, at the start of the the uh, uh, the conf well it's not the start of the conflict but the start of the the Russian uh, intervention in Ukraine I went to, about the only time I've been given a platform on a mainstream media channel I went on to my local radio station to make the case about why I felt it you know this was NATO's responsibility that this war could have been prevented it could still be stopped right now Ukraine should be a neutral country. Uh, you know, NATO needs to stop its expansion and so on and so forth. And um, I was given a really kind of hard time by the uh, interviewer. Um, and, and he even put to me, um, what do you say to people who say you're betraying your country for uh, expressing these views? He also actually said that they had a long debate in the radio station about whether they should even have me on the radio to allow this view to be articulated and obviously they've never invited me back since and you know we're not we don't get that alternative viewpoint it seems on national uh media uh, platforms but they really are seeming to close down on me any kind of uh opposition at all i mean you know formally i know you could argue we are at war but particularly back then but you know we haven't actually declared war and yet we are being uh closed down in a way that as you say happened in the second world war and certainly in the First World War, it's quite troubling, isn't it? Um, well, I think it's part of a, a wider trend towards conformism, um, which has been manifest particularly during the COVID crisis, 
and uh, look at how anybody who dissents a little bit from the official narrative is immediately dismissed as a conspiracy theorist. And whatever we may think about vaccines, the, the current hounding of Andrew Bridgen, the MP, who had the mm. temerity to just question the safety of vaccines, um, the hounding of uh, Andrew and his uh, defenestration from the Conservative uh, Party, Parliamentary Party, is um, is very eloquent of the times that we, we live in now. Dissent is not tolerated, Chris. Dissent no. is not tolerated. This is a, an enormous battle that we have to fight on many fronts. Yes, I mean, it's, which makes it even more important, I think, that, that, that we do dissent. Because, uh, you know, as I was saying in a, in a little video I recorded for the No to NATO campaign, we're on a very dangerous slippery slope. But, Peter, I wonder whether you could tell us about your experience of NATO's role in the, on, the, on the international stage, particularly in Syria, where you've got direct experience. I think people would be really interested to, to hear your take and, you know, what you encountered uh, as, a, as a diplomat. Uh, well, NATO as such did not loom very large uh, for most of my, my career, um, and particularly after the, the uh, dissolution of the, the Soviet Union. Uh, NATO went into a sort of hibernation, and, and, and wasn't it um, Donald Trump, who, who, or was it Macron, who said that NATO was brain dead? And, and this was only four or five years ago. Um, uh, so NATO as such uh, didn't figure very prominently. What did figure prominently, of course, was U.S. imperialism. <laughs> the U.S. Uh, uh, aided and abetted, uh, whether it was on Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria, by uh, uh, robbing the role that we play we, the British, play to America's supermen. Um, it's very much a U.S. Uh, militarism and U.S. imperialism that we had to contend with. And it's really only the Ukraine crisis which has breathed fresh life into NATO as, as, as a, an organizing uh, important machine. Um, but for, for much of my career, um, uh, NATO barely uh, figured. And it's tragic that uh, we're now confronted with a situation where we have a kind of twin, two-headed two monster, U.S. imperialism, alongside uh, NATO. Although, of course, uh, NATO is really only uh, uh, an instrument of U.S. Yeah. imperialism. I mean, you say it didn't loom particularly large on your horizon. Um, and it was either Trump or Macron who, who, who suggested it was brain dead. Having said that, of course, it did substantially expand during that period of being brain dead, didn't it? I mean, from 1991 and the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the talk of a peace dividend, I mean, many of us were wondering, well, why on earth should, should NATO even continue? But 
it seems there was a huge effort to actually, ex- even though there was a promise given to Gorbachev by James Baker that there would be no expansion beyond the German border, not one inch eastward would it, would it expand, he was told. But then he didn't have the sense to get that, you know, in, in a binding uh, treaty. And, you know, NATO virtually doubled in size. I mean, you know, what was that all about? Other than, other than, you know, providing lucrative uh, uh, profit opportunities for the military-industrial complex. Uh, absolutely right. Um, but this uh, uh, expansion to towards the east uh, occurred with very little attention being paid uh, to it. It, it, it. it sort of happened on under the the radar. Um, People uh, generally were, were not aware that the, the 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 territories to which we were committed to their defence uh, had vastly expanded, and that we 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 were now bumping up against the borders of of Russia. I remember being surprised to learn that Estonia was uh, a, a member of NATO, and that we were sending troops there. I, I thought. I was never going to see this kind of thing in my lifetime, and yet there, there we were doing it. It sort of crept up uh, quietly, mm-hmm. and um, partly I blame Russian uh, diplomacy for for not rattling the bars of the cage uh, more loudly mm-hmm. uh, much earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, but for much of this time, Russia had the illusion that the West was not that unfriendly. That the West could be lived alongside, and that the West could tolerate another important uh, state in 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 Eastern Europe. Uh, and still, uh, even until the beginning of the, this recent conflict, the, the Russians used dignified language about NATO and NATO countries, uh, individual uh, leaders. They, they they referred to our Western colleague. I thought at the time, how yes. naive is that? Get real, guys. These are your yeah. enemies. <laughs> this was Putin talking in those terms, wasn't it? Yeah. He kept referring to uh, his, his colleague, Western colleagues. <laughs> it, did, it did strike me as a bit odd, I must say. But Peter, I mean, you, you, you've um, got a distinguished career in uh, diplomatic uh, service, uh, ambassador, as I've already said. So you've had an inside knowledge, if you like, an inside track onto you know, how the diplomatic service uh, operates. I mean, what are they, I mean, what, in your experience, does the diplomatic service do and say about this sort of situation? I mean, do, are, they, are they encouraging the political class to risk th- a third world war or, or or are they do you think uh, urging caution I mean, how does it work behind the scenes uh, the, the first thing you, you have to understand uh, Chris is that uh, British diplomacy in the foreign office has never been result oriented nobody ever gets judged in the foreign office on results has a policy worked or, or has it backfired? No, it, it, you're, you're judged on appearances and on whether you've avoided embarrassment uh, for ministers. 
and how pleased ministers are with your work. Um, but you're not judged on, on results. A small example, uh, one of my successors as ambassador to Syria um, predicted uh, after the, the Syrian uh, conflict had got, got going in 2012 that Assad will be gone by Christmas. Well, he wasn't gone by Christmas 2012 or Christmas 2022. Uh, and yet the guy who got this this important, important prediction uh, totally, totally wrong uh, was promoted afterwards and made ambassador to a bigger country, Saudi Arabia. You're right. The people seem to fail upwards then in the diplomatic uh, well, I, 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 I said about many of my colleagues that they rose without trace. <laughs> yeah, it must have been, I mean, for somebody who's obviously principled like you, Peter, I mean, it must have been incredibly frustrating to work in that kind of environment. I mean, was it? Um, it, it was it was difficult. I found it difficult uh, as being a, a pro-Palestinian campaigner um, and throughout my yeah. career. I tried from the inside to make British policy more fair and and impartial on on that subject. Uh, that, that that kept me me going, but also kept me down. You don't get rewarded for actually believing in any cause. Um, the, the Foreign Office is, is, is totally, totally amoral. Amoral. Mm -hmm. You're not supposed to believe in anything except the narrative, the current narrative, uh, whatever it is. But very few of my colleagues um, uh, actually believed in, in anything or went on to mm -hmm. champion any cause except the cause of arms manufacturers or or, yeah. or Saudi Arabia or, or Dubai. <laughs> did you did you come across um, many people who believed in an ethical foreign policy or that an ethical foreign policy should be embraced by the political class, by the government? Well, Robin Cook, you will remember Robin I Cook, do. I'm sure, uh, in, 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 in the late... Uh, 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 80s, 1990s, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, uh, mid mid 80s, uh, was for, foreign secretary and, and he very explicitly uh, tried to promote an ethical uh, foreign policy, but he was totally unsupported uh, within the foreign office and undermined uh, from within. By civil servants? Well, by people like me. I, right. Yeah. I must admit that initially I, I thought it was uh, naive uh, mm. to promote the kind of an ethical foreign policy that he was after, which seemed to in involve going soft on Islamist extremists. Mm. But, but as I came to know him, and I, and I did come to know him, I had that, that privilege, um, I realized that although he was a bit naive, uh, he was also well-intentioned and fundamentally doing a, a good thing. I remember one day sitting down with him early on in his tenure, and he opened uh, a big Times Atlas on his big uh, foreign office table 
and said, Peter, when I look at the map of the Middle East, uh, I see trouble everywhere. What's wrong with these people? I said, I can tell you in one word, Secretary of State. Oh, one word? What's that? Britain, Foreign Secretary. Yeah. Britain. Many of these places used to be colored red. Indeed. How did he respond to that, Peter? He said, well, come to think of it, you're absolutely right. I hadn't, but it hadn't occurred to me. Well, it should have occurred to him as the as the foreign secretary, for God's sake. I mean, look at Britain's involvement in the overthrowing Mohammed uh, like Mossadegh in, 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 in Iran, you know, as long ago as 1953 and all the other, you know, terrible abuses that the British state had been involved with. I mean, you know. Politicians it, usually have no sense of history. Well, that's a tragedy, isn't it? Yeah, that really is a tragedy. Where they do, yeah. like Johnson with Churchill. Uh, yeah. The, yeah. The, the wrong lessons. No, indeed. Indeed. And turning back to um, to NATO explicitly, I mean, I wonder whether you could just briefly give us your take on NATO's role or NATO's involvement in Ukraine. I mean, we touched on it at the top of the programme, but say a little bit more about, you know, what you think about NATO's involvement in uh, this conflict so far? Well, it, it, it's, it's no exaggeration to say that this is now a war between uh, NATO uh, using a Ukrainian proxy and, and Russia. Uh, NATO is, is, is in it uh, uh, up to its neck, not just with the provision of massive uh, arms uh, deliveries, um, some of the uh, most advanced uh, weaponry, things like howitzers, um, um, air defences, uh, but, but also provision of intelligence, helping with Ukrainian targeting and uh, and, and diplomacy, of, of course, covering the backs of the Ukrainians, information warfare, economic warfare, on, on and even soldiers on the ground, special forces. Mm. In almost every sense, uh, NATO is already conducting war against Russia. I mean, the, the, the media narrative and the, you know, the political, the narrative from the political class is that, and indeed some of the stuff that we're coming across on social media by, you know, the various troll accounts is, uh, you know, really important what NATO is doing, what Britain is doing, to uh, you know, defend Ukraine, to defend the you know plucky little democratic Ukraine that is standing up for Western values. I mean, how do, how do you respond to those sorts of arguments? Uh, people have been uh, brainwashed in, 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 into seeing NATO uh, as a as a good thing. Um, they. Uh, they see everything in terms of uh, Hitler and, and the Nazis. So oh, yes. brainwashed into seeing Russia as the, the, the new Nazi Germany. Uh, Putin is demonized as, as the new Hitler. Um, it, it, it's the same in almost every conflict. Saddam was also demonized. He was a, an Arab uh, Hitler. Assad was demonized. Uh, he was an Arab Mussolini. Um, that's the trouble with this country. 
Uh, yeah. We see everything in, in terms of the, the Second World War. You've only to look at the TV schedules any day of the week to see umpteen programs about or related to the Second World War. Yeah. We, 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 we arrested mental development, in, particularly in, in Britain. It's no accident that Britain is a, a leading uh, member Number two, after the U.S. It, in uh, this conflict inside NATO, that we are in the front line, and we've put ourselves in the front line for punishment if it ever comes. Yeah. Well, we're already being punished with the uh, rising uh, costs of of energy and other well, shortages, which are generating inflationary pressures. I mean, so so we're already you know being punished, but of course that punishment could get Considerably worse. Uh, Funny enough, Peter, you know, you mentioned about how, you know, Putin's demonized as, as Hitler and Assad was demonized as Hitler and Saddam was demonized as Hitler. I'm just reading a book by Peter Hitchens, not my political flavor, but a very interesting commentator. I don't know if you've read his book, uh, uh, The Phony uh, Victory, I think it's called. I should now read in the book, actually. But, but, uh, but he lists uh, all of the um, West's enemies that you know that we've had conflicts with really since the second world war all of them all of them have been described as hitler you know it's another hitler you know right even to noriega you know i mean because it's not just britain that, that, that indulges in this fantasy it's also uh, the united states as, as well but i mean um, just moving on uh i mean you, i'm sure you you, you saw uh Jens stoltenberg the nato secretary general what he said uh, in December, uh, in terms that a full-blown war between Russia and NATO was a real possibility, he said. I mean, notwithstanding that there's a kind of, you know, de facto war already, but but he was out and out war with NATO. I mean, that's World War Three. That would be World War Three, wouldn't it be, Peter? A NATO war against uh, Russia, an explicit one. Well, these days, nobody ever actually declares war. It, it's not. Mm. It's not just Russia. Uh, which uh, doesn't like to use the term uh, war. The, mm. the, the problem is when you actually make war explicit, certain legal consequences follow. Uh, notably, you become liable uh, to be prosecuted for war crimes. And so nobody actually declares war these days, whether it be Russia or, or, or any Western country. Um, mm. because uh, of these uh, feared legal consequences. Yes, I mean, I know that uh, Russia argued that it had a, uh, uh, a legal right to intervene in uh, Ukraine because of the uh, fears about what would uh, uh what was about to happen, what had been happening, what was about to happen to the people in East Ukraine in, in the Donbass uh, region. It's a, um, I think it's, uh, I can remember the term for it actually, uh, Peter, you might know, but it's, it's a right to, or, or an obligation to to defend uh, peoples who are... R2, R2P, right to protect. Right to protect, that's what I'm, that's what I'm searching for, yeah. yeah. Um, 
I mean, it's, it's, it's a doctrine, isn't doctrine. it? This is a very dangerous Western. And it's a doctrine, isn't it, that was dreamt up by the United States and Britain, wasn't it, in the first place, exactly. actually? Exactly. Uh, and, and we love it when it's applied to situations yes. like Afghanistan or uh, Iraq or, or, or Syria. Uh, we sometimes call it humanitarian intervention uh, or, or right to protect. Yeah. An extremely dangerous uh, doctrine because it, it mm. comes up uh, aggression and 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 plunder. Uh, so no surprise. Where, the, the Russians have tried to turn the tables. Yes, I mean you could argue uh, that you know with with some legitimacy there was a an imminent uh, danger to the people in the Donbass region. I've seen reports from some of the journalists on the ground who obviously don't get a platform on the Western media saying that, you know, people in Donbass, uh, or many people, I'm not saying to say everybody, but 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 a lot of people, what they were saying, what they what they experienced, you know, they spoke to people and they saw it and reported on it that that, that people in Donbass actually celebrated the fact that uh, you know that Russia had started its um, its special so-called special uh, operation. Um, and we know that you know fourteen thousand people did perish in the in the eight years after the uh, EU and US backed coup in Kiev. Um, so uh, we also know, don't we, that Ukrainian forces were massing on the border of uh, Donbass, and we know, don't we, that there'd been joint operations between NATO and uh, Ukrainian forces. And we also know, don't we, that people like uh, Alond and um, uh, Merkel were saying that the uh, Minsk agreements were just a fig leaf to give Ukraine time to prepare to rearm and to, uh, you know, essentially, you know, take on a Russia and, you know, war with, with Russia. I mean, there was a, what's his name, a guy called John Denny writing in the... Uh, yeah. It, it works for, you know, I don't know if you saw that article writing, I think it was the Washington Post. Um, uh, he's a big noise in the Atlantic Council, which is a sort of a think tank for, for NATO, talking about the, you know, saying that it was worth a kind of a strategic uh, uh, risk of, of war with Russia was, was kind of, you know, worthwhile. I mean, it, so it, it seems to me that there's been a, a drive from NATO to, to, to push for this for this war. I mean, some argue that, that their intention is to balkanize, ultimately balkanize if they can Russia and uh, and then pivot against China. Would you would you agree with that analysis or not? Um, I'm not not sure. I I I, I would. Um, I think we were more reckless. NATO was was, was absolutely uh, reckless in allowing a situation to develop where Russia felt that it had to mount a preemptive strike. Uh, to 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 preempt the the offensive, which, as you rightly said, the Ukrainians themselves were preparing to launch uh, against the uh, the Donbas. Um, but I I haven't myself seen convincing evidence that there was a deep seated plan to trap uh, Russia in, into this conflict. Uh, I I see more uh, opportunistic exploitation of an opportunity that, that came yeah. along. 
uh, rather yeah. than something that had been planned from. Interesting, yeah. I don't know if, you, if, you, if you've read much of John Mearsheimer, but I, I saw a lecture from John Mearsheimer in 2015, I think it was, after the coup had happened. And I mean, he was he basically predicted everything that's happened now. I mean, he said, unless Ukraine commits to neutrality, if the course that we're on at the moment continues, I think his words were, Ukraine will be wrecked. And tragically, you know, what, what his, his words were prophetic, weren't they? I mean, see, you know, see, I mean, even Henry Kissinger was saying at the time, wasn't he, that, uh, you know, Ukraine should be a neutral country. Yes, I, I could never understand what, what was wrong in, in Ukraine having a similar status to Austria. What was so yes. terrible about that? Why should that be so hateful? Or 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 Switzerland being neutral? What is so terrible about that? These are eminently successful, prosperous countries: Austria, Switzerland. Uh, that that would be perfect for uh, Ukraine and to act more as a, a bridge between East and and West than mm. a motive for for conflict. I know, I know Vladimir Putin gets a very bad press in this country, and uh, no doubt I will, anybody watching this, uh, you know, who's hostile, will, will say this is another example of me being a Putin apologist. I'm not, but he put forward a peace and security plan, I think it was in December 2021, which said in terms that Ukraine should be a neutral country. And I think he talked about, you know, NATO sort of pulling back, you know, it's kind of relentless expansion. And but it was just dismissed out of hand, uh, you know, rather than actually engaging in a in a discussion and in a debate uh, about it. But, but there is some merit, isn't there, in 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 that? And it, it isn't that in the end, if we're not if we're going to avoid the Third World War, isn't that what will have to happen? Ukraine will have to become a neutral country, won't it? Well, there are different scenarios you, you can uh, imagine. You, you, I, I believe the most likely is for a, a frozen conflict. Um, no war, no peace, uh, skirmishing continuing for, for years, um, possibly something like the, the two Koreas situation, if, if there's ever a, even an armistice. Um, yes. I think that's that's where we're we're headed. But with Russia in continuing control of most of the Donbass and and uh, with the land corridor to the the Crimea, it's just a humanitarian tragedy, isn't it? That so many people have lost their lives already. So many people have been displaced, um, and more people are going to die. I mean, uh, you know, Scott Ritter says that in his view. Russia has effectively won this war. The only thing that's left now is just more death and destruction. And I mean, he's, you know, many others are, you know, calling, pleading really for for wiser heads to prevail and for, for some sort of, uh, you know, diplomacy, the sort of game that you used to be in uh, directly as well, a profession, uh, uh, Peter, should should, uh, should come to the fore. But just finally, Peter, I just want to, of course, we probably wrap up with, with just one final question. Uh, I guess you will have seen, won't you, yesterday that the doomsday clock was set at 90 seconds to midnight by atomic scientists. And 
That's the closest to midnight that the clock's been since it was established in 1947. I mean, do you do you think that the NATO and NATO and the the political class are taking the possibility of nuclear annihilation seriously enough? Uh, definitely not. Even if the chances of, of, of the conflict going nuclear were only one percent, still. We we should not take the slightest risk to 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 be in that territory. Um, when you consider what 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 is at stake, it would be no great loss. It would be no loss at all, actually, to British security or even less American security uh, for us to uh, leave Russia in in control of most of Ukraine and Ukraine to be neutral. Uh, we, we would be no less safer than we are today. And, and it pains me, really, to hear people trot out this lie that, oh, after Ukraine, it will be Poland and us next. I mean, if there's one thing, if there's one single thing that sane people ought to be able to agree on, it is that Russia's strength was immensely overestimated by all concerned. Uh, any thought that, that Russia could be rolling its tanks across the plains of Western Europe have surely been shown to be totally exaggerated. They can't even beat a little country, a relatively smaller country, on their borders. So what threat are they, could they possibly be to the massed ranks of NATO countries? Um, this, 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 it, it's painful. It's painful, but there is there are no adults in the room, no mm. adults in the room, no senior statesmen today. Uh, Kissinger, you, you rightly mentioned uh, briefly, made a cameo appearance uh, early on uh, and was promptly ignored. Um, but the, the, it, around the world, there 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 are no senior statesmen, or at least none outside Russia. No, no. It's a tragedy uh, that we should never have happened. But uh, I, I guess, Peter, in conclusion, what it, it means is that it's even more important that the no to NATO, no to war rally and campaign does proceed. And we're determined that it will proceed on the 25th of February. We are making links with a similar movement in the United States. We're building a transatlantic campaign. We want to also build links with colleagues in Europe because there is a, a growing opposition in Europe to the role of, of NATO. And this is because clearly the political class, the diplomatic class, have let us down desperately, it seems to me. And given what uh, we know about the uh, you know, the uh, doomsday clock now being closer to midnight than it's ever been. Uh, there's never been a more important time, it seems to me, for, for the public to, to kind of rise up and demand that the people that we elect to, you know, represent us, to protect us, to you know, create a good society, actually do the job that we actually elect them to do. So I want to just uh, thank you, Peter, for, for coming on uh, this evening. I know that you're going to be speaking at the No to NATO rally in London on the 25th of February. We are going to proceed with that. We are looking at potential alternative uh, venues. 
If people are interested in participating, uh, go on to the No to NATO uh, social media on Facebook and on uh, Twitter. You'll be able to find the updated uh, details and uh, anybody who's interested in, in participating, we'd love to, to see you there. And let's sort of build a movement so that we can actually create a fair and decent, peaceful world. Uh, so thank you again, Peter, for coming on this evening. Thank you, everybody, for watching. We'll be back next week at the same time on Resistance TV. And until then, look after yourselves and good night.